Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Ruler podcast, supported by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. One of the more surprising announcements towards the end of last season was the retirement of Marcel Kittel. 14 stages, one in the Tour de France, a stage winner in all three Grand Tours. An interview with Kittel is the lead feature in the latest edition of Ruler, written by editor Andy McGrath. Andy, did it it did come as a surprise, didn't it? Because most people thought that Marcel Kittel must have had a few years left in his career. It came as a massive shock to everyone. Uh, I think he'd had maybe a few months, uh, maybe a whole season off colour. But also we're so used in cycling to this cycle where you have the downs and then maybe you get the next two-year contract, the next one-year contract, and you keep searching. There's comebacks and quite often sprinters never do come back to the top form. It wasn't working with Katusha. He wasn't happy and he stepped away. And in the process of the downtime during that break, he decided that cycling wasn't making him happy anymore, full stop. And this was kind of, this is actually all kind of relating to a bigger black hole that was something like depression that he endured for several months in the spring of 2015, which he goes into in great detail. It is rare to have a pro cyclist going into that much detail. And I, I, I think the fact that he's a recently retired pro cyclist is the only reason that he went. He, he was so eloquent um, about it because he has nothing to lose now. He had nothing to hide either, whereas talking so openly about it would have been construed as a weakness if he was still racing. And that was uh, 2015, that was the year that he wasn't picked for the Tour de France team with um, Giant Alperson, wasn't it? And the, the, which obviously had, was one of the things that really had a big impact on him that year. That's right. I mean, his black hole coincided with a fairly um, acrimonious falling out with, with Giant Alperson. So in the process of, of interviewing him, it's funny because he does come across, as he always has in video interviews and past interviews, he is a, a very nice man with perfect hair, perfect English. But he is a champion and champions are sometimes difficult to deal with. And that's inevitable. Uh, that's not a slight on his personality, but he did have some problems with giant Albersin. I think that was due to the change in his status and them not adapting. But I, I'm sure they have their side of the story too, that there were certain things there. So that was quite interesting. Yeah, but that's something that stars have to adapt to there's always like you can't stay in the um, ascendancy for very long ever there's always roadblocks or obstacles 
It's part of pro cycling, isn't it? Those sort of ups and downs in the careers and the team changes and those times when you are on form, those times when you aren't. If you, yeah, compared to the career of someone like Cavendish, who's had loads of ups and downs in his career and yet is still out there riding. It's quite, it's, it's an interesting contrast, isn't it? Yeah, I find there are a few contrasts and, and some similarities kind of uh, between those two. They're either there winning or they're nowhere. Like, Looking at the stats, it was shocking to see that Kittle won 14 tour stages. I think he was second twice and third twice on stages. That's insane. That kind of win rate, it's almost like he's magnetised to the top step of the podium. And Cavendish has a similar kind of ratio, only um, he's got over double that. But so that it's also, all or nothing. With it's all or nothing, yeah. Whereas Kittle makes a point in the interview at comparing himself to Cavendish, talking about the mutual respect and their rivalry. But he also says that, you know, Cavendish loves cycling 120% or something like that. And he didn't have this total love for the cycling world. And maybe that's why he stopped before him. But this is the other thing, like, a lot of things didn't go in, um, into the interview because it was a long, like, hours of conversation. And I asked some more, I, I suppose, more basic cycling questions, uh, things like, why did you think you were so successful? Uh, can you talk to me about how you analyse the rivalry with Cavendish and Andre Greipel? And they were, the answers were kind of among the most au- um, automatic, prosaic of the whole interview. Like they were just kind of 10, 15 seconds, not said with much feeling. Whereas kind of Kittle spoke in such length about around his retirement and reasons for that, as well as the happy moments that he shared with teammates that really that became more of a focal point for the interview. And I have to say that <laughs> there was one question, because I talked to him in Switzerland in early, in early November, met him there, and we caught up just before Christmas on the phone. And things had already moved on because his uh, baby son had just been born. And I had one lot of questions that I was going to ask him, and I just didn't ask him it because it seemed pointless. And that question was, do you think there'll be um, a comeback ever? for you and it it seemed stupid because from everything that he was saying from the way from his body language from the way that he was acting he seems rapidly moved on very happy throwing himself into his university course he's gone back to college isn't he he has uh yeah yeah a a university in Constance uh in uh in Germany and he's interested in you know things like why buyers buy certain things like the choices they make and with this course he could do anything from teaching to business to leadership. I think also with the lessons he learned from pro cycling, funnily enough, that will bring um, him on e- uh, even further in, in whatever he chooses to do next. But it, it was really an interesting, enlightening interview. It's a fascinating article. And it, there, there are sort of hints in there, there are suggestions from him in there, that um, those psychological issues, whether you call them depression or, or not, are, are not uncommon in the in the pro peloton. That's what I found really interesting when I asked him, do you think there are other champions possibly suffering in silence? And you have to suffer in silence because how does airing it publicly help? Uh, like the chattering masses on social media would not be so kind, some of them. Your rivals would see it as a weakness. So we didn't realise the extent of his black hole, as he calls it, until post-retirement. And I suppose the worry is that he thinks there are other champions going through a similar thing and they may have already coped with it. 
in private and maybe some going through it now and I, I really imagine it's a very lonely thing like you can only confide in your nearest and dearest um either family or on the team and there's so much pressure on you like you must feel so much pressure and it must be really really difficult to get out of and it was difficult for Marcel Kittle to get out of and it's hard to find the support network because on one hand you're being paid to win or come as close to winning as possible so is it a business or is it a kind of a personal care scenario it's it's really tricky but he seems much happier to be out of it he seems much happier I mean he's only 31 he looks the same as um he always did you know he's he's aging well enviably well I have to say (laughs) oh and the other thing you realize is that he can do a lot more things like there was a clause in his contract saying that he couldn't go skiing he could do that now he's doing crossfit he can eat and drink what he likes um of course but it does make you realize that it's such an intense world that it's normal for these people to have massive highs and crashing lows and perhaps the modern sport could do more to help them but i think it is slowly kind of adapting to sports psychiatry and but in many ways, it's quite a macho and traditional sport, which is something that he says too. And that evolution has to keep happening. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing um, he says is that, you know, in a few years' time, in 20 years' time, no one will remember him, which I find hard to believe. Yeah. Um, I almost rub my eyes at that. I think it's a little bit of false modesty. But what he is alluding to it is that things move on so quickly in pro cycling. And that's true because we're... We've already watched a tour down under. And in fact, kind of he was talking about the sprinters that he thought were going to be big. And that was another answer that was kind of a nothing answer. He kind of said, oh, Sam Bennett's going to be good. Pascal Ackerman has a really good team. But he listed more sprinters. And if anything, it kind of underlined like the strength in depth um, that's currently out there. But yeah, I think he will be remembered as a great sprinter who stepped away early. That will be the memory I kind of say in the article that he kind of blew across the scene like a hurricane, you know, 15 wins or something like that in his first season, which is unheard of, unprecedented, really, especially in 21st century for a, for a neo-pro. And he would either have double-figure wins or next to nothing. But I think that he'll be remembered uh, certainly for more than five years, more than 10 years, more than 15 years, because, well, for starters, that's Germany's highest stage win tally. Puts him in the top 15 of all time. Like, this is really kind of legend territory, I think, isn't it? Egan Bernal's victory in the Tour de France last year turned another spotlight onto the talents of the latest generation of Colombian cyclists. It's hardly an overnight success, of course. People have been predicting a Bernal win for a couple of years. And you can't forget Naira Quintana, Esteban Chavez and plenty more. Well, one man who knows the country and its cyclists very well is Matt Rendell. He's the author of a new book, Colombia Es Pasión. Um, Matt, it's uh, the success success of the current generation of uh, Colombian cyclists has, has been a long time in the making, hasn't it? It has been a long time in the making, yes. There was a cycling scene in Colombia in the 1940s, and out of that came the first tour of Colombia in 1951, created by 
a, a kind of almost comic book character, fabulous character, who's still around um, in his 90s, whose name is Efrain Forero. And he worked at the, at the soda plant in a, a town, a little town north of Bogota called Sipaquira. You may remember that Sipaquira is where Egan Bernal is from. And so when Egan returned to uh, Colombia after the classic San Sebastian in August to uh, celebrate his win, they put up a huge stage in the central square and Efrain Ferrero at the age of 89 climbed up onto the onto the podium and they sort of hugged and it was Colombian cycling going full circle in a sense. It was a magnificent moment and Ferrero, I mean, rode with Fausto Coppi and Hugo Coblet in the in the in 1958 when they went to Colombia and you have the the origins and its fru- and their fruition uh, coming together at that point so yeah wonderful moments and a long long history uh, what is it about colombia do you think that produces so many good cyclists ah well um i've got four books uh, to date uh, attempting to explain that <laughs> things have changed so much that the reason we have Nairo and the reason we have Ivan Sosa, uh, that those they're two completely different instances with different explanations. And you think in Nairo's case, um, one he started cycling very very late, um, at about the age of fifteen, and um, for several years after he'd started, he, he reminds me of a kind of jazz musician from the nineteen twenties or something who, from a certain amount of hardship, has been inspired and and captivated by the, the the glittering sheen on a saxophone or a, or in his case a bicycle and that has hypnotized him and it's offered him something that's very difficult to come by in a, a fairly poor rural setting which is a sense of fulfillment and of ambition and, and of personal satisfaction and Nairo had no idea there was any such thing as the Tour de France or the Giro d'Italia when he started training as a cyclist. He didn't know that there was such a thing as professional cycling. Whereas, of course, you know, Ivan Sosa's what, um, eight years younger and started uh, watching the Tour de France on television. So in the case of Nairo, he was born in 1990. He's the fourth of five siblings. The eldest brother, Alfredo, could never have been a cyclist because in those days, the eldest children of peasant farming families had responsibilities. They were working from the age of seven, eight. But Nairo was the fourth brother, managed to eke out a little space for himself and engage his father's enthusiasm and so on. Whereas uh, going back to Ivan Sosa, um, Ivan's parents are the same. They're peasant farmers. They could not uh, be clearer that their family business, as it were, their cultivations, have no future. So when their son showed some cycling talent, they got right behind him and pushed him. So um, what you're looking at, the, 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 the single you know, central factor to the creation of this incredible generation of riders is the collapse of peasant farming and ultimately this population of really strong you know, farmers' sons living at altitude, great organic food, good clean air, you know, really long, steep climbs. And what sort of wider impact has uh, the success of these cyclists had on Colombian society? The sheer uh, amount of Colombian success since 2010, it's normalised the country. It's made it 
it's given it's softened the image enormously. Uh, I'm sure you know people, I know people, friends who I would never have imagined going to Colombia who've gone there backpacking, and you know the hostels are, are full of are full of international backpackers. It's very much part of that circuit. Um, there's lots of uh, cycle tourism going on, and there's lots of cultural tourism. You you actually find quite a lot of French tourists, French young people in Colombia, and 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 I think it's impossible to imagine that without uh, their cycling success and their Tour de France success. It's very easy for a cycling journalist or someone writing about Colombia to exaggerate um, the, the the effect of the the, the sort of normalisation of Colombian success in world cycling, so that people, you know, are, are, are quicker to think of. Of, of, of Nairo and Esteban and Rigoberto and, and Miguel Angel Lopez and now Egan um, than they are to think of Pablo Escobar and other things that happened in, well, you know, 30 years ago, um, e- even though there's still a lot of that about and a lot of one of the reasons that I'm motivated to write about Colombia is because still, I mean, even L'Equipe in France during the Tour de France last year wrote a piece about, uh, about Egan and, and couldn't refrain from mentioning Rodriguez Gacha, who was a kind of very, very violent colleague of Pablo Escobar, who was born not far from where Egan was born. And what would your predictions be for this uh, for this coming season uh, for the Colombian riders? Well, I, I, I think we'll see a renaissance in Nairo. I mean, I think um, he was uh, unhappy at uh, Movistar, unhappy with the way uh, his, his, his brother was treated, unhappy with these sort of constant changes of programme and travel itineraries that, you know, took t- t- the long route and meant he lost days of of training and that sort of thing. And ultimately, the penny pinching of, 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 of an old style family run operation. Egan is absolutely the real deal. Um, and I think he has to be favourite to win the Tour de France. Miguel Angel Lopez is clearly, I mean, when you think he finished uh, third in that uh, 2018 uh, Giro on the podium behind Chris Froome and Tom Dumoulin, I mean, any other race, third behind those two, you know, equates to victory, really. So um, he's squandered opportunities a little bit, and he's sometimes been a little bit slow to learn from his mistakes, but he is absolutely world-class. And uh, speaking with a a coach and physiologist I know in Colombia who's worked with many of these riders, he says that... um, uh, you know, Egan has got the greatest cyclist mi- cyclist's mind or, or sportsman's mind that he's ever worked with. But the best physique he's ever worked with is Miguel Angel Lopez. So, you know, uh, we, we sh- should be slow to think that the baton has definitively, you know, passed uh, Miguel Angel and, uh, onto Egan. I think there are spaces for him and he's a fabulously talented rider. And then you get down to Danny Martinez, who's really establishing himself in the very elite of cycling, and uh, and and Ivan Sosa, who's an absolute phenomenon, and um, I think possibly already the best climber in the world. But there are many, 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 many more coming through. Colombia S Passion is out uh, on Orion Books. When's it actually published, Matt? It's out on the nineteenth of March. Having spent um, twenty-five years of my life really building towards this book, I've got to turn it into some money now which would be nice I'll be out uh, hopefully touring and talking and boring you all senseless with it for which apologies in advance look forward to reading it this is the Ruler podcast supported by Lacquer bicycle insurance powered by the community I'm Mark Williamson and I've been a Lacquer customer since the start of 2019 so about eight months now 
So I was on this new bike and stopped off at a coffee shop at a hotel just to send a few emails and make a call. Came out and found someone had taken off um, the headset at the front. They'd cut the braking gear cables, they'd unscrewed the handlebars and stolen the, the, the bars and shifters. Laka were phenomenal, actually. I was blown away by both the immediacy and the kind of helpfulness of the support. They seemed keen to help. Uh, and it was just a remarkably hassle-free experience. couldn't have been happier with the service despite being incredibly frustrated that somebody had decapitated my uh, my new bike. Welcome next to a new columnist to Ruler, although a familiar name to Ruler readers and cycling fans, Orla Shenwi. Orla, uh, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. Can I ask you first of all, how did you first get involved in cycling? My entry into cycling was as a news journalist, really. I was um a correspondent at uh, Sky News at the time. And I've always been interested in sport. I was a track athlete as a kid and track and field was my first love. And when I became Olympics correspondent at Sky News, it was just after the Beijing Olympics. So we were building up to London 2012, essentially. And, And so I got into it really because of my journalism. And once I started in it, and this is pre Team Sky, Um, But once I started digging into it and reading into it and getting underneath the skin of the sport a little bit, I just absolutely fell in love with it. It fascinated me. There were so many facets as a journalist, as a sports fan, just sort of ticked all the boxes for me. And then, of course, because I worked for Sky News, when when Sky as a company invested in uh, Team Sky and then it became a big uh, British interest story, I was, I guess, the only person within Sky News who had any um, knowledge of cycling at the time. And so um, I just ended up going to the Grand Tours, the Tours of France. And yeah, I mean, it, it just stemmed from there, really. And it's become my life, really, uh, which say, seems bizarre to me now almost. But um yeah, it's become such a huge part of my life now and um, feels strange that it almost wasn't at one stage. So you've got this new column in Rouleur. Um, anything specific you're going to be writing about? Have you got any sort of specific brief? Nothing specific at all, thankfully. Um, so I can touch on anything I like. I've been told within reason, probably. Um, but I think really because I am a journalist and, and a cycling fan in conjunction with that, the reason I became a journalist is because I'm interested in people. You know, I'm interested in stories. I get a kick out of finding out what makes people tick. And that is part of the reason I fell in love with cycling because of the richness of those stories and the backgrounds of, of the, you know, the hundreds of people involved just at the elite level, the history of the support. And also the brutality of cycling is something that um, I find absolutely fascinating, which might sound a little bit dark, I guess, but you know, it's a sport where someone can break a collarbone and get back on their bike and push themselves for over 100 kilometres a day, sometimes 200 kilometres a day. And I mean, I'm not saying that's healthy, but it is fascinating. I'm intrigued by the depths that the riders go to, the, the sort of the darkness, as I say, that can come with that, the reserves they can dig into. So I'll be touching, I guess, on the psychology of cycling in a way. But I'm also quite passionate about the role that sport can play in society. Um, I'm interested in how it can be a barometer of where we are in the world, where we are in history. And I think part of that comes from being a female sports journalist, because because we're still unusual. People 
I feel tend to ask me more than they would ask a male journalist why I'm interested in sport, why I'm interested in cycling and, and why does it matter? And so I think it's crystallised in my head really why I think that cycling and sport matter to wider society. So I'll be trying to link little things like that as well into into my column. So it's a broad, broad brush, I think, that I'll be painting with. But probably if you're interested in gear ratios or bike setups, then maybe my writing might not be your first port of call. But hopefully I'll be able to find things that have a universality and and uh, maybe appeal to people on a wider level. That's that's my hope anyway. Well, last year in Rouleau, you wrote a story on uh, sexual abuse in cycling of, of women riders. Um, it was called, um, you know, some people refer to it as cycling's Me Too moment. Um, what's been the impact of that story, do you think? It's been significant so far, and I hope that it's that it's something that will that will continue to grow. I guess it sort of links back into what, what I was talking about in terms of you know where cycling sits in society and in history and um i mean you can read you can read the article online uh, Riller put it all for free online which is wonderful of them the article came from a strange place in a way because having spent a long time as a journalist our job is to take a, an objective distance from stories and simply to report on them and i think with something like this it's almost i don't know if it's impossible but i find it quite impossible anyway to be emotionally detached from it I guess as a woman, as a mother, as a woman who works in in cycling, and so I've ended up being involved in it a little bit more than I well, a lot more than I would than I would in other stories. Most stories you write and you leave, you walk away from, and this one I felt I couldn't really do that, and so I've had quite a bit of feedback from people. So, for example, British Cycling and USA Cycling, as as independent bodies, got in touch with me and asked you know, if if there was anything that they could be doing to make their riders um, a little bit safer. So I've had conversations there. Um, I've also done um, a video essay, if you know, for want of a better title, with Peter Georgie, who is a BAFTA award winning documentary maker, um, and Pfeiffer Georgie's dad, uh, the, the Trek Cycle Federal rider. And um, he got in touch with me for a similar reason, really. He felt like it was um, an important piece of journalism, an important piece of society journalism journalism I guess um and he just wanted to see where the story would go so we um filmed a, a video essay which is on his YouTube again just to see if we could make more of a noise about things and so off the back of that um the Telegraph got in touch and they did a piece about the video essay and about the ruler piece and I guess it's about making as much noise as possible um and trying to affect some sort of change I mentioned that USA Cycling got in touch Kelsey Erickson was the person who got in touch with me from there she's their safe sport director um a lot of your listeners may know what safe sport is already but just to briefly say it sort of came off the back of sexual abuse scandals in the USA and it's um uh, a federal gov- uh, federal funded body in the USA um that is supposed to look after the well-being of of athletes so you know if there is an example of sexual abuse or bullying or or uh, you know anything untoward i guess then then athletes know where they can go to to get help and she was interested in trying to establish some sort of a, a universal anti-abuse code, which is something that fascinates me. And she pointed out that, you know, we have um, an international doping code. So, you know, as an athlete, you can go anywhere in the world and you're protected to whatever extent it works um, by WADA. And her argument was, why don't we have this for abuse in sport and across all sports? So that's a conversation that I'm interested in pursuing. And I've spoken to the Cyclists Alliance, which is the women's uh, cycling union, essentially. 
and trying to start conversations in the UCI as well. And so, yeah, I've, I've ended up being a little bit more involved in this story than, than I would have done otherwise. And I guess maybe taken a more campaigning role with it. But it's slow progress. It's slow progress. But um, I'm heartened by the fact that there are people who want to make a difference and and make a bit of noise about it, really. So what are you looking forward to uh, this season? Oh, oh, right. OK, well, I mean, it's cliche to say that you sort of look at whatever's next in the season. I mean, I can't wait for the spring classics. I can't wait for the classics to get underway. It's going to be so exciting. Um, on the classic side of it, I actually can't wait to see the women's racing because we are now in a situation where we're supposed to have um, women's world tour races that are streamed live for um, three quarters of an hour. So I really can't wait to get to see some of these races live for the first time. That'll be brilliant. I think the Giro is going to be really exciting, but it's always about the Tour de France for me. I absolutely love the Grand Tours anyway. I think the Tour is going to be fantastic this year just because of the strength of teams now, and I think teams trying to out Ineos, Ineos, I think is very exciting. I was at the Jumbo Visma launch here in Amsterdam just before Christmas, um, and their team setup just looks so juicy, doesn't it? I mean, I also think from what I see of that team, there does seem to be quite a bit of team harmony, um, which is what it takes if you're going to be able to break the dominance, dominance of Ineos. You don't want riders fighting against each other. So I just can't wait to see how all of that plays out and, and what we get to see from Ineos at the Tour de France this year. You know, you've got, they've got so many Grand Tour winners now. It's ridiculous. What will Chris Froome be able to do? He's coming back into action shortly. For me, it's about um, the classics first and foremost, principally, I think, really, because of the novelty of the women's side of things and then uh, the Giro and the Tour de France. I can't wait for it already. Ola, it's uh, great to talk to you. We'll catch up with you again later in the season, if that's okay. Of course. Thank you very much. Ola Shenwe. And what a pleasure it is to talk to someone so informed and articulate. Well, now it's time for Stuart Clapp. Uh, Stuart, I understand you're calling in from a Ruler Desire photo shoot. I am, mate, because I couldn't speak to you on Monday when we originally... Uh, plan to do this because I've lost my voice. Clearly you've got it back though. I have and I'm making up for lost time. I'm calling, I'm standing on a bridge in uh, Rotherhithe in South London where we're doing the photo shoot for issue 20.2 which is it's got a bit of a classics theme about it. A lot of Belgian stuff. So what's the connection with Rotherhithe and Belgium then? Well there are cobbles here and there are pubs Benedict always has this thing where he says you don't need a location you just have to look because there's stuff everywhere and actually London is beautiful and I love South London as well but we've been down on the riverbank which was quite good until the tide started coming in and then Benedict got a booty do you call them booties when the tide comes up and you get a wet foot and we thought oh you know what we better move these like really expensive posh bikes off the riverfront uh now but yeah we shot, shot it all around here we'd on a bridge by What's it called? The Salt Key Pub. And it's got like one of those big, big iron red bridge, like swing bridges. So, uh, yeah, I was just doing some stuff there. It's like Girona, but colder. Any particularly good uh, kit you've got in? Any particularly good bikes? Yes. We've had a very special S-Works, um, Roubaix, and a special colorway that um, they sorted us out. We've got um, a Chioc, which is really fancy and really shiny. We've got a Tatisi Flexi, which was a Luca DiMaggio had painted it. And it's, that's really nice. And um, and also what I thought was really interesting, we actually had the guys from Jaeger come over and hand deliver a bike for this shoot. They're hand built steel frames from Ghent. So I went over with 
Matt Stevens to watch Cav at the sixth day. And we stayed with Dries, who does cycling in Flanders. You might have had him on the podcast before. And um, we stayed with him and he said, oh, why are you here? You've got to come and have a look at this local bike shop, Batea in Ghent, which is a really cool shop. I went around there and they've like got, it looks like an art gallery, more like a bike shop. Anyway, so I'm walking around and then I saw this Jaeger bike thing in the corner. So I went over and had a look and he was like, oh, I'll go and get the guy. He builds those frames out the back. So he was like the one of the only guys still building hand-built frames in Belgium at one point, or certainly Ghent. The really beautiful bikes are a lot of money, but he just bought over their, their like racing steel frame. And it is it's beautiful. You wouldn't. It's like um, the welds on it are just so smooth. You're, it's right up your street. Oh, I'll be interested to have a look at that. And of course, um, South London, uh, Rotherhithe. You're not far from your beloved Millwall, are you? No, it's not. It's just down, just down the way. And I was hoping you weren't going to bring that up because I don't like it when Millwall lose. But I suppose playing Leeds last night, Leeds are a good side, and I shouldn't really say that. And I'm sorry, we do seem to be losing the connection there with Stuart Clapp. I'm sorry, that's all we've got time for. Um, Thank you, Stuart. And that's it from this podcast. We'll be back in February. Catch up then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.